Good evening, and welcome to the second episode premiere of Historical Myths. Today's movie, to which that we'll be criticizing some of the historical inaccuracies, that's very subtle, but yet it's still there as that counts as a mistake that is displayed, is the movie called Dunkirk, being released in 2017 by the director of Christopher Nolan. Now, now, Dunkirk follows the evacuation over 300,000 soldiers from a French base in the opening stages of World War One. World War Two, I mean, sorry. Visually, I must say that, despite some of the move, despite of some of the the historical inaccuracies of it, it is virtually a masterpiece. It is like, I would say that it is like one of the most unique war films to take. And, and for the most part, the movie really sticks kind of religiously to the facts, like taking from inspiration from actual wartime photos to the frame of the action. Like even that weird looking sail, sailboat at the end was actually there. But of course, of course, but of course, as for the reasons for this podcast, they don't get every single thing that is what's right. Now, here are the things that Dunkirk lied about this historical events. For the first, for the first one is the Nazi nose cones. Now, going through some of like of the interviews to which that Christopher Nolan has been asking some series of questions about his intentions of how he actually began to display this, began to display of how he wanted this to be filmed. Christopher Nolan was very candid about the historical discrepancy. In the movie, German planes that Tom Harley's character flight has their nose cones painted yellow. Now, that was something that actually did in World War Two, but that wasn't until about a month after Dunkirk. The reason that he, and that the reason that he did this, as this is actually one of the questions that the interviewers had, was that he wanted to adopt the color scheme for the planes in the movie. It was a very simple matter. Was just a, was a simple matter of identity. Like during the dog fights, which that we see, like some I must say, very very good footage. The yellow identifies the planes as a German at a glance, making it very easy to audience to keep up with the action without actually trying to figure out who it was, who was at the whole time. And then we have one of the most very very subtle. One of the most very subtle mistakes that are actually in there. With a French destroyer that has been actually been used. That has actually been used and to be converted to look like a, a French World War II destroyer in the 1940s. But there was an actually decommissioned destroyer of the French Navy in, in the 1960s. There's like some of the subtle appearances that s- many people with that not much knowledge of the, for being competent with naval 
naval ships in World War Two can can really tell the difference if it's just in sea. But for the I for the for the very experienced ones, that mistakes is treacherous. The French destroyer that was pictured was called the Mallory, Mallory, Bernese, or just number, just destroyers, model 627. It was named by the famous French Admiral Jean Armand de Mallory de Brise. Now, now, Christopher Nolan was very clear about this historical alteration, but he had to make it for the sake of for the film. He used a French destroyer instead of a British destroyer, which that the British destroyer that was the most significant one was actually HMS Britomart. It was from the seven from the served in the Second World War. As it was somehow accidentally sunk in a friendly fire accident. For someone extremely knowledgeable, they will see the differences. Someone very knowledgeable could actually see the very subtle differences uh, depending with... They could see the very subtle differences that you know that it was not an uh, that the destroyer you was not an actual British destroyer because you can, well because if you use because if you actually use the actual pictures from the actual pictures that I've taken you can see that in comparing to with to the boat that they used in the movie that is a much larger boat and it's a much larger boat. But they tried their best to make it look like a British destroyer. And that, but of course, but nevertheless, it is still served its job fairly good. As the, as the destroyer was there. Very, very, um, uh, um, very tediously. Very frantically trying to get as much people loaded onto the boat before being fired upon some of the Germans' planes. And now, let's see. Um, um, da -da 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 -da. Besides being a duty that's only a hardcore history book will ever notice, the most important takeaway is that Christopher Nolan actually filmed it on a real destroyer instead of falling back on a CGI. I would take this as an extra smokestacker on another battleship, like, you know, some other movie that has been released called, well, Battleship, because, you know, like, USS Iowa battleship being used in some alien warship kind of crap. And let's see now, um, and then the next, then the next mistake was about the Ferris fuel tank. Now, when we first meet Tom Carey's fair character, Ferrier, we can see him that he's in the air. But now, when we listen to him, 
speaking, the movie announces that the story lasts around an hour. It's a very intense story arc, and we are right here then cockpit with him when the pressure is in there starts to run low. He starts with 50 gallons, he has to pop his reserve tank by the time he reaches Dunkirk. But that's a problem. The main flyer that was used by the Royal Air Force at Dunkirk was the Supermarine Spitfire MK1, which that I do, by the way, do say that, that they did not actually use, they did not actually use the actual, the actual planes being filmed in this. They used some mock-up planes. They actually used some mock-up planes to make it look like the actual thing because because they actually re because for this measurement measurement for the German plane they actually used a a licensed copy that the uh, that the Spanish produced that was given that which that the blueprints were given by the by the Germans during World War Two, and that the, and the Supermarine Spitfire was actually not the Pacific model of a Spitfire that was used because the what you because the Spitfire to what you see in the film is a Spitfire Supermarine Spitfire Mark One A. But the one that we that they used was, but that ones that that actually used in the evacuation of Dunker was a split fire, was a split fire, Mark V B. Despite of that, in regard now referring back to what I was saying, then now the main fire was used by the Royal Air Force at Dunker was the Supermarine Spitfire. They were very fast and agile plants with a few tanks that could hold at least 85 gallons, giving them a 395 combat range. In contrast, there was an evacuation road that ships, that the ships used, that the ships used to cross the English Channel, as it was around about 55 miles. Accounting to the dogfights and the switchbacks to chase the bomber going right after going to the British. Um, right after going to the British story, he should have had plenty of fuel. Spitfires could fly around 220 miles per hour on only 26 gallons of fuel per hour, as this has been, as this has been provided by the board of, as it has been provided by Six that has been released by the Royal Navy Air Force, the Royal, the RAF, of time that they released to the public. To the public, that the split fire because at what that chart says that a split fire can fly two hundred twenty miles an hour only on twenty six gallons of fuel per hour. Only more time running out of fuel is only totally possible, just probably not in one hour. And then, then there's another one with civilian volunteers, as we saw in the movie. Mark Wayland's character, Mr. Dorm, risks life and to and his limb to pilot, pilot his small sailing yacht across the channel in Dunkirk. And in real life, there was like around 700 private crafts assisting the evacuation air force. They were called the little ships of Dunkirk. Yeah, they were pretty awesome. And it was true that some boat owners they actually took up the call and sailed on their own ships for. For the evacuation, just not very many. 
According to the Association of Dunkirk Little Ships, the vast majority of the boats were actually assigned by the British government, which as naval officers were assigned to sail them at Dunkirk. Speaking of little ships, the cavalry arrives. Now, it makes a great, very heartwarming climax when the four of the little ships ships at the Battle of Dunkirk. There was no heroic moment when the ships were lift, because Operation Dynamo lasted around, um, what was it again? Maybe around in May to June. Around to June. Which both of the little ships in the British Navy worked tirelessly all over for 12, 12 of those days. And while the movie makes it out from the arrival of the little ships as a turning point, they didn't actually rescue all the majority of the soldiers. I mean, like, out of 338,000 men rescued, only 239 were actually taken off of the mow by the Navy ships. Less than 100,000 were actually picked off from the beaches, and there was many that were actually carried out by ferries and other larger boats. But... Only 6,000 soldiers actually made it a trip across the channel in one of the little ships. The contribution to the evacuation effort can't be understated, of course, but it can't be overstated, as it has always often has been. Which is a common misconception, which I'm very glad that I can discuss it about. For those who have thought that was the case. <clears throat> And then there's another one with the French connection. Now, at one point in the movie, we see French soldiers clamoring to get into the Eastern Mole that had leads to the evacuation ships, only to get turned on, by the way, by the British officers to tell them that the British ships were for the British soldiers, which, that's where we hear about the French until the end, where the commander Bolton had says that he will stay behind to help evacuate the French. But the French army wasn't was actually front and center in Dunkirk. Of the three hundred thirty-eight thousand soldiers that were taken off the beach, one hundred twenty-three thousand were French soldiers. Now, these hundred twenty-three thousand soldiers—that's like a third of them that everyone was rescued. As for the French soldiers who didn't make it off, they were actually fighting to get on an evac boat. No, that was not true. They were actually back in the actual town of Dunkirk, holding the Germans back while the evacuation took place. Estimates put it around there was like uh, between fifty to 90,000 and more who were taken captive because they took a stand and dug in and dug in and take a stand on the beach. And then there's the other one, which I'm, which I'm sure that's kind of obvious, where we see the entire town of Dunkirk being completely fully intact with nothing being destroyed. Because, you know, the majority of the Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk takes place on the beach and at the sea, and mostly on, mostly on the air. The traffic of the Nolan tie that makes up to the narrative of the film. However, we do get a few glimpses of the town, mostly from the beginning. What we see is an apocalyptic venticity, but there was not actually any real destruction. Except for the Pike of Sio sandbags in one scene, which looks like much of a war zone. What we should be really seeing is like utter destruction because the Luftwaffe bombers and the shelling for the Germans actually approached from the east of Dunkirk, which that it was brought during the knees during the evacuation.
No, I do. I'm quite surprised that Christopher Nolan actually filmed the town, filmed, actually filmed in the town of Dunkirk, which still gave that very historical presence of the film, but doesn't really truly, doesn't really truly review the, the severity of the situation, as for what the soldiers should be seeing, because, well, it's since. When intense bombings is really not going to be anything in intact. As now for the thousands of everyday lives ground to a halt, the minute Allied troops actually retreated to Dunkirk, it took over years. It took many years after World War Two to rebuild the lives to start something resembling everyday life from nothing very enormously. But now, thank you for watching, and I appreciate that you have seen the second premiere episode of this, of this podcast.